The following conversation contains strong language and subjects of a mature nature. Hello and welcome to Meet the Stars, the podcast where each week I, Luke Anthony, delve deeper into the career, life and mental health of the stars. This week's guest is American actor, musician, writer and comedian Jackson Goldberg. Jackson is best known for playing a lead in the Sammy Hager's Space Between, based on the concept album of the same name. Jackson and I recorded this conversation a month before the US election in 2020. We touched on the state of the world in a few parts of the conversation, and weirdly, nothing much has changed. The world still seems a little bit broken. But hey, why not distract yourself now? And please welcome to the show, Jackson Goldberg. Jackson Goldberg, welcome to the Meet the Stars podcast. It's really a real pleasure to have you on the show. And I guess the, the place to start really is is sort of your childhood and, and, and what life was like growing up in San Francisco in, in California. Oh, wow. Well, thanks for having me on the show. I, I, I grew up in San Francisco, California, like you said. I uh, really loved it. I loved, I mean, the nature outside is you know the bay area has gone through a lot of changes since the tech boom and, and all that and um, it is changing rapidly but one thing that's true now that was also true when i was a kid is that like the natural beauty and nature of the bay area the oceans and the mountains and the fog god it's just like unparalleled for me it's there's something about it the air just feels so nice and maybe it's because i'm from there but i don't know it's, it's really it's been really hard to top Although there's great things about other places. That's why I, I like the UK too, because you guys have that nice gray fog, you know. And I like <laughs> the, yeah, it's comfy. Which, which literally you know, immediately brings you into reality, doesn't it? When you see gray city like, like in Cambridge or, or something like that. <laughs> yes, oh, love it. I mean, I'm in LA now and, you know, it's very hot, lots of sun and, um, you know, it's great. That, that's great too. Yeah, let's see. I grew up in San Francisco. I went to a really small, like hippy dippy high school in the city where we like sat on the floor and, you know, we didn't get grades. Um, we just like talked about how we did. It was really nice. It was really great. But I kind of, uh, it was definitely just like a, a very liberal, accepting bubble that I kind of grew up in. And I had a, was pretty sure the rest of the world was not exactly like that. I mean, San Francisco's got its own problems, but in, in terms of social acceptance, you know, it's, it's pretty progressive. And so I went to college in Indiana, um, in Bloomington, which is in um, like Southeast Indiana. That was in, just incredible. I mean, it was, uh, it was an incredible learning experience for me. I, I love the people there. I love the way it's very gray in Indiana as well, which is a good match for me. <laughs> There's is more like a, what I would imagine Russia is like, as opposed to San Francisco, but it was, it's really lovely there. And um, I mean, I guess it's something like throughout my whole life that I've really valued is just trying to meet and interact with people who are really different from me and have very different backgrounds from me. And that's something I just, I never want to stop doing because there's just endless value for you both in that interaction. And India was really, really great um, like that for me. So in San Francisco, you, you're brought up in a, in a very liberal sort of society. And, and obviously it's, it's very well known that children in the usa uh, are brought up to believe that they can become the next president for example can 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 do that does that not put pressure on you as a child to be successful to to achieve and to to aspire to be better than you know than than, than mediocre 
Yeah, I mean, I think it's, I, you know, I can't, I really can't speak to past generations because I can read about it, but I don't, you know, viscerally know what it's like. But for us, I mean, for me, yeah, I mean, it's success is you're working 24 seven and you love your job your job is your life. I, I mean, I definitely feel like even though I intellectually or logically reject that and just feel like having enough food and water and people you love is like kind of the main thing you know? in, in, it really, um, it's really affected my life, I guess, in the, and just maybe in one sense, and maybe this is not the best way to think about it, but just the idea of like, okay, how are you going to love your job? Well, the way I'm going to love my job is if it's doing acting or music or something I'm really passionate about languages in that sense I mean that that influence has been really great because it's motivated me to try to excel in the things I love and and make the things I love work for me and you know pay my bills with them and it doesn't always happen but um, when it does it's it's fantastic and I love it and I, I, there's definitely a negative side to it of kind of always feeling like you're behind and we had, I don't know if you guys use this term FOMO, but short for the fear of missing out, um, which has existed before social media, but obviously has been a very prominent factor in people's lives since social media. And I think just kind of the overachieving gene or whatever is like very affected by what's happening on social media and the fear of missing out. And it almost seems like it's designed to make you feel like never satisfied, like you've never done enough. And, you know, it can definitely be really poisonous for actually, for actually getting things done. And I've seen lots of my friends struggle with that and I've struggled with it as well. Yeah. I mean, on, on social media, it is, it is true because every, everyone puts out their best stuff, which, and, and you get this very warped view of a success and, and how other people are doing and your peers are doing in it. And it creates a huge amount of anxiety to feeling like you're not you're not good enough you're not you're not succeeding enough you're not doing enough and I think I think that's a global thing I don't think that's um solely you know an American thing and that's a global thing that you see on places like um Instagram and it's just or like these these vanity filters that you have on photographs that I just think creates this weird sense of success that doesn't even exist because it is it sells the idea of materialistic success when really success is an an like an inner self thing, isn't it? It's a it's a self satisfaction thing. It's a it's a inward concept, isn't it? Rather than you know having an award or having a trophy on the on your your um your shelf. Right. And I, I think people are very confused about that. And like, then once they get the trophy, they're like, oh my God, why am I still depressed? You know, <laughs> And it's because that's like that. Yeah. That's not really the goal. It, it can't be. I mean, not that you can't have goals, like I'm going to get this trophy or anything, but mistaking that for real genuine inner happiness and truth is you know it's a big problem i've definitely made that mistake loads of times yeah and it's all it's all a a journey i guess and in that sense of um kind of like you you know dealing with the stimuli that you're given from childhood and then going through this process of growing up and constantly interrogating that and being like is what i told right is this working for me okay maybe this seems like it's working for some people but this isn't my way i gotta go do this I don't know. It's it's hard, and people don't like it when you change your mind. You know, <laughs> you know. I think I think um, the big the war against social media 
like mental trends or whatever that I always try to fight in myself is like being okay with something because I like it. It means something to me. I think it's cool. Not like, oh my God, I hope everybody else feels the same way. It's like, that'd be great. But the main thing is that it's important to you. Yeah, definitely. I, I totally agree with that. And at what point, at what age do you start realizing those things? What what age do you start becoming aware of of, of yourself and, and what you want in life and, and things like that? Man, I feel like it's still, still, still happening. It's like a, a constant process. I mean, I, for me, it was really, you know, it's just in the last year or couple of years, um, I've been doing a lot of introspection about how to deal with social media and kind of deal with the idea of like possibly becoming a public person someday, you know, as an actor or whatever. And just like, how, how would you deal with that? And uh, I th- not like, you know, oh, <laughs> preparing to be famous or something, but just the reality that like, you know, you want your art to be seen and, you know, you want to pay your bills using your art. And- Absolutely. And, and, and how young were you when you realized you wanted to, to be an actor? I was 17, I would say. I did this play and I had been doing plays for like a couple of years before that. But um, this one, I played these two brothers. One of them was an evil twin and the other one was like the good guy. And it just, it was the most fun I've ever had in my life. And the response I got from just people I love and trust was just really, really changed my thinking from like this, is so much fun, but now I have to find a job to like, okay, what if I could just hang on to this joy and this intense passion that I'm feeling and make this my life? And that was, yeah, when I was 17, I felt that. What was the draw towards being in the spotlight for you? Well, I don't think it's so much, it's not being in the spotlight. It's really, actually the really great British actor, uh, Mark Rylance. Um, I just saw a uh, quote from him. I think he's in the Chicago Seven. He's a big, I've seen him on stage a million times in New York. He's the man. He said, I think he said, it was like a lot of people think that, you know, actors want to be actors because they want to be like the center of attention and be seen by everybody. But um, he was like, well, the truth is for me is that when I was a little kid, the only situations where I really felt comfortable being myself were like these imaginary situations when I was playing and creating. And I mean, that's, that's exactly how I feel. I am... I love to disappear into characters that are very different from me. I've been in a lot of shows where people didn't recognize me after I came out and for, you know, to the audience and everything. And that's what I, that's what I like doing. And I like to sort of disappear into somebody else and really figure out who they are and in turn, figure out more about myself and humanity and what makes us all tick. (laughs) At any point, do you feel that you lose an element of your own identity? Do you ever get lost in the characters too much or, or the, the people you're trying to play? I've, I've definitely had moments, especially when I was younger. Now that I've been doing it for a lot longer, um, that happens a lot less. Just, like, you just get better at it. But yeah, I played, I had a very intense role. When I was 23, I played this school shooter and I just like, you know, I fully committed to the characters you have to and it was great but I my family came to see the show and I just remember we were like went out to eat after and I was just so like weirdly aggressive with them and just ways I would just have never been and it was just I had just 
was still in the character or just was so, you know, I had spent so long focusing on this person and the way he saw the world and, you know, it was difficult for like, I mean, for like an hour, you know, outside of lunch with my parents. And I would say most of the time it's, it's, uh, it's a very clear separation, you know, thank God. <laughs> Yeah, definitely. Yeah, of course. You, do, you don't want to repeat some of the previous actors, the method actors that have got, gotten themselves into deep states of depression and, and anxiety just from being getting themselves into the mode of a, of a, of a character. There's, there's certainly a risky run with that. But does that come for you? Does acting and, and writing is another string to your bow? Does that come from your empathy that you have for other people? Yeah, I. that's an interesting way to put it I, yeah i think so i mean I, I think i mean lots of people like to do this everybody says like the bad guy is the most fun to play right everybody wants to play the bad guy in the show and the reason for that is not because everybody wants to vicariously do bad things it's it's because this is a representation of something in our society that's like not exactly right there's some sort of issue here and like here's an opportunity to understand it and convey this kind of disconnect that we have about it. Not without justifying, you know, the person's actions, just showing how this is a, per, a human person doing this and it could be you if you had been in their shoes. And I think that's really important to be constantly reminded of. Yeah, absolutely. It's a, it's an important thing. And does that and do you attribute that to to the way that you were brought up or, or the city that you were you were brought up in? my parents are my well my mom's a therapist and uh, that helps yeah so she's always had that <laughs> kind of greater understanding of people um, and i really tried to take after her in that way and just kind of i guess like you know giving people the benefit of the doubt but more than giving people the benefit of the, of the doubt giving them you know space to tell their story and talk about themselves and even just in line at a corner store, talk to somebody who's experiencing homelessness. I mean, it's like little things like this can be scary and it's outside of the norm for, you know, what you do in your day, but it's really, it's like, those, that's the stuff you remember later. And like, that's the stuff that really matters is that human connection. So, I mean, that's acting is all about the human connection. One of the things I've noticed in your resume is is that you've you've um, done a lot of comedy in your acting. Is that something that you've you've been passionate about for for many years as well? Uh, yeah, I mean, I've always, I mean, I've always, you know, I made faces at myself when I was a little kid and just try to annoy my older sister and always been doing characters and yeah, I mean, comedy's always been the most natural way that I connect to all this stuff. And I mean, just in life, it's sort of, it's part of the way I talk and just the way I understand the world. And it's very similar to music too. It's, you know, when to do the right thing at the right time, when is too much. And a lot of my friends do a lot of comedy or are musicians who are just like side splitting funny, you know, if you talk to them in conversation and the thing a lot of these people have in common is that, you know, they have a very close relationship with darkness as well. And I think being close to comedy and practicing comedy in your daily life, whether that just means joking around with your friends or doing stand-up, allows you to like live with more darkness and be more conscious of it, I guess, than you are when you're just thinking in your inner monologue about yourself and your own problems and whatever, like making jokes out of it is seems to be the way to understand it to me. 
Many creatives um, have a past of difficulty or depression or some kind of struggle, something that gives them a motive, something that gives them a drive to to aspire to be more or to aspire to be different. Now, taking it away from the American dream or whichever cliche you want to use in that the, the they use in, in you know propaganda and things like that, your personal experience in in whichever situation you're in is ultimately the, ultimately the thing that's going to mold your future. As somebody that does do comedy, which is which is something that drives such a such a brilliant emotion, have you had your own struggles with mental health, your own struggles that have gravitated you towards being a creative, towards being somebody that that is outward in your performance, at least? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, I think just from an early age. I mean, it's like not even you know getting into my own whatever, but just like you know, watching TV and like you said, propaganda that occurs in all its forms, you kind of have a version of the world that you're supposed to accept. And it's very clearly wrong and inaccurate. I think that's really where the comedy comes from. It's just the anger, the intense anger at um, the stupidity and mendacity of kind of regular life and this like hidden violence, you know, that, that it promotes. I think being silly and crazy and all those things are ways to rebel against the more insidious aspect of just mundane day-to-day things and not thinking about all of everything. Yeah, you know what I'm saying. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, totally, totally. And and what sort of coping stra- um, strategies have, have you employed in your own life to to get through the difficult times, to get through those things that you see in the media or the things that upset you or the things that make you angry? A couple of things. I mean, I think, you know, getting together with like-minded people. I actually, I was uh, I was telling you about this on Wednesday, but I was part of this uh, national tour in um, 2016. We were doing like a documentary drama play. That's a true story. And the, the idea of the tour was to um, connect people who are oppressed by state violence all around the world, but specifically Black people in America and Palestinians in Israel. And there was just a documentary about this this play, which is called There's a Field, and Eric Garner's mother spoke, um, and Michael Brown's mom was there, and just people getting together in solidarity. There's something, it's, it's talking about it is one thing, but feeling it is another. It's like, this is corny or whatever, but I mean, you realize every, everybody's really trying to do the same thing. Everybody's just trying to get freedom, you know, and live their lives with some dignity, and I mean, just when you are talking to people from all over the world who are trying to figure out how to do that, you know, in just the most basic way in their societies, it just really brings life into perspective and what's important in this community. And I think it's, it's so easy to just be on social media by yourself and just be scrolling. And it's so depressing and hopeless and I'm a slave to Google and, you know, all this and whatever. Yeah. But, uh, you know, just getting, I mean, getting out there and, and talking to people and having, you know, camaraderie with your friends and like-minded people. I mean, it's so important. It's just like the search for community, right? It's taken me a long time to, you know, quote, find my people or whatever. And there's just nothing more, more valuable than a sense of community and shared ideals, which is what's really hard for everybody and kind of heartbreaking about what's happening in America right now. 
Absolutely, yeah. And I think, well, I think the whole world certainly is, is struggling with, with their own struggles. I think it's like the whole world is imploding on itself at the moment. And, and that comes from not having the right conversations. It's clear that in San Francisco, you're generally surrounded by what is often called an echo chamber in a sense that people have a similar message. People have this relaxed mentality towards life, this, this everything's going to be all right uh, mentality. Now, mm. how important do you think it is to broaden your mind and, and listen to people that have opposing views to you? Because you spoke about camaraderie and community just then, but also to, to become more worldly and to become more you know knowledgeable about different cultures and different views. We also have to hear from the other side to, to, to build that bigger picture, to build that bigger view of the world rather than just living in our, our small little echo chamber that just affirms everything that we think. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that the echo chamber creates, you know, a lot of politics based on perceptions, you know, and fantasy and stuff that's not really out there. And talking to the other side is is very important. I, I was talking about community, I guess, just in the sense of it's it's good to have support when things get tough. And but yeah, I think I mean it's it's really disturbing for everybody. I mean, I. I used to always pride myself of, you know, being somebody who could talk to anybody from any culture and, um, you know, we'd be able to have a, a meaningful conversation, even if we didn't agree. And I think what's changed is that we like both, you know, we don't have, everybody's losing this ability to listen to each other, like to have this conversation, at least both sides have to kind of have this like intention of listening to what the other person has to say before they refute it. And I think we've gone so, our realities are so disparate these days that, you know, there's so, there's so much less we can agree on. And it's tough because, you know, if I'm talking to somebody who's a, a Trump supporter and like they say, you know, mail-in ballots are all fraudulent or something. And then you say, okay, well, I believe that they're not in many states only have mail-in voting and the president himself is mail-in voting and yada, yada, yada. Let's both, you know, look this up on sources we trust and see what we find. And the problem now is that I'll look it up and I'll, I'll see what, what probably what I just said and the other person will look it up and, and see whatever they want to see, <laughs> whatever reality uh, whatever reality their their um, Google screen has been calibrated to. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. and that and that's only that's only generated by searching for things that that will be associated with that. You know, with things like cookies and everything that tracks you, what you're doing and what you're absorbing and what you're receiving is is all there. And so you're only going to be seeing things you've already purchased or things that are associated with what you purchased. And and that also goes with, I guess, I guess political views and things like that. So if you're certain things you're 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 typing into Google will forever leave you in this this weird echo chamber that you this virtual echo chamber that that will close you off from from the other side. But we spoke we've spoken about social media and being often often being like a a negative place a, a place that is almost seeing a troll in person that's that's just jumped out on a bin shouting abuse at you like a sorry a garbage can as you would call it in the US and shouts abuse at you it's the equivalent thing where you get twitter trolls and and things like that but i think equally in the way that things are portrayed in the media in certain certain strands of the media especially on on certain um channels 
also just fuels that flame and fuels that hate on both sides. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm so glad you brought that up. That's very, I think that's very perceptive. Like everybody's like, you know, this, and I was maybe like saying this too, you know, the real problem is social media and like news was totally fair and unbiased before this. I mean, no, of course. Like, I mean, it's funny because we all, we, I mean, so many people, I think mostly younger people, but a lot of people are kind of like, wow, things are, have never been as bad as they are now, you know, and this is a uniquely bad time. And that may be true in some aspects, but it's also true that, I mean, just controversial figure of what another one of my favorite guys from the UK don't agree with everything he said, but I uh, love the way his brain worked. Um, Christopher Hitchens gave a, a 1996 interview about the media and politics and ratings. And he was a journalist in Washington for a long time. And it was basically talking about how uh, the White House staffers, uh, it was the Clintons then, but you know, it's been everybody will just, will send a list of agreed upon questions and, you know, talking points. And if the show rejects their talking points, then they just won't go on the show and the show won't be taken seriously as a political, you know, pundit talking heads show because they won't get the White House people they want. So like, I mean, that was over 20 years ago that he gave that interview, you know? I mean, this is in a lot of ways business as usual. I mean, sometimes social media just lets you see it, I guess. Yeah, that's true. I, I had this conversation with somebody recently that, and it was it was specifically about racism. The question I asked her was, do you think that you're now more aware of the racism now that social media brings it to your attention? Or do you think it's always been there? She she, she responded that she said she thinks it's always been there, yeah. but she's never she hadn't experienced it before because because it wasn't in her attention. So it's quite an interesting thing that certain elements of it and and how quickly information can go viral is something that then suddenly a huge amount of people in the world are absorbing this one this one thing that could be you know, negative, it could be positive, but usually the algorithms work on things that are hard hitting and controversial. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think as a, you know, a white person and white looking person, racism is something that's always, you always feel it's there. Uh, And it's just, it's used to be when we were kids, I mean, it's almost like this awkward thing that you don't talk about because it's not polite and you know, like you will offend somebody by saying that there is racism, which is a ridiculous idea. But I, I agree, social media, I think, has uh, has really driven public action on this. I mean, the action of people in the streets demanding things from leaders. And I think we're kind of testing whether that still works or has ever worked right now. But I mean, again, like, I mean, just like with something like the George Floyd video, you know, I mean, any five-year-old could tell you what happened, you know, if you saw that video. And again, you have people being like, well, he was this and he was that. And so it wasn't really like that and whatever. And it's just, it's it's hard when the video evidence is not enough too, because then you're like, what do you, what do you want me to do? You know, what do you, how can I, how can, how can I explain this to you? There's almost no way of avoiding these things. There's no way of, of completely, um, you know, pulling yourself away from it unless you can, completely cut yourself off and all of that so I'm, I'm sure that whatever whatever strategies there are that people use to, to cut themselves off there's still an element of 
you know, feeling like we're connected to something, feeling like that we we have information being fed to us, we get up to date information about things that are going on in in the world and globally. But with with elements of negativity that you you absorb, how do you cope with that? How do you how do you bring yourself into a state of calm and 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 cope with with those things? Well, I I mean, I guess aside from action, I work out a lot for my mental health and to counteract my ice cream eating. As we talked about earlier. And um, I also, um, I just, you know, focus on my passions and things I love and playing music and writing. And in the past, I've been really shy about becoming politically active and just very nervous about, I don't know, implications or like, you know, if my family would be okay with it or if I would get in trouble. You know, I'm a big rule follower, so I don't like to get in trouble. <laughs> I, um, after I, I, once I got involved with the uh, Black Lives Matter and um, the Palestinian rights activists through doing this tour and play, um, and we, I mean, we went to Ferguson and protesting right now is complicated, right? Because of COVID and a lot of things, but this is the most essential, this is one of the most essential tenets of um, the U.S. and why we like it and why we're here and why we're trying to save it, you know, everybody's trying to save it in their own way. But it's like, I mean, if protesting is, you know, a national pastime, but more than that, it's a global pastime of oppressed people. And, you know, there've been some, there have been some crazy shootings of unarmed people and all sorts of stuff. You know, I just always think about um, like in, I think it was maybe 2005 or 2006, the green revolution in Iran. It was just like, watch this footage of, these like mothers and sons and just families um, marching together against oppression. And the the Republican guard was just like, all right, we're gonna shoot you. We're gonna mow you down if you keep walking. And they just like were holding hands, kept walking, you know, and they got killed. But, you know, they were protesting for their rights and their dignity as a human. And you have to do that. <laughs> and um, And I just wanna do it more and more. Do you think that perhaps if people responded more positively to things that were unfair, things that were unjust, that there'd be more impact? Often protesting often gets bad press and gets reported negatively. But if you respond with positivity and something that is clearly positive and nobody can dispute that, then perhaps that would have more of an impact. Well, yeah, I mean, I think... I think that's been happening. I think, you know, there's, you know, I mean, the thing, the problem with these protests, I guess, is that, you know, any, anybody can go and, you know, you have people protesting peacefully for their rights. And then you have somebody like Kyle Rittenhouse, you know, who just comes in and mows people down, then it's a riot. And I think that, I mean, I think, so I think this is one of the the biggest problems with social media, not to harp on it again, but just, I mean, what, so like the earliest, one of the early really positive things that social media enabled was the initial Arab Spring, 2010, 2011-ish area. And it allowed people to secretly organize peaceful protests and to demonstrate in countries where you're not allowed to even have more than three people together weren't related. And the only way they were able to do that is social media. And they did it very successfully and they overthrew governments. But what happened very quickly is that the security forces of these governments figured out how to use social media against the people who were organizing. And, you know, I mean, this isn't a real example, but like they would do things like, oh, you like this peaceful protester, this leader? Well, here's a picture of him like killing a child or something like that. You know, 
I think that's happening right now. And I think that makes it so hard to perceive events as positive or negative, I guess, because everybody has an interest in, you know, the source of who's posting the video and all that. Absolutely. Yeah. And and obviously one of your, with, with all these things that happen in the media and, and across the globe that, that could be elements of stress to you, you, you know, you obviously convert that by being creative with being an actor, being a musician, a writer and a, and a comedian. And a few of the projects you've, you've done, I mean, you, you've you had a, a nomination for the best lead actor for your role in Bad Jews in 2018. You've you did this amazing History Channel sketch, the first in it ever. You, you're obviously very creative and, and putting yourself in places that allow you to create like positive atmospheres and, and places for people to, to to escape to from these stresses um so tell me about so tell me about some of the projects you've you've been doing in the last few years yeah so the first one you mentioned bad jews it's a really really cool play it's a four-person play everybody's under 26 in the play and it's, it's basically three cousins one girlfriend of one cousin and um they're all staying together overnight in one of their apartments because their grandfather who survived the Holocaust just died and they are, one of them missed his funeral. And there's basically this fight over his chai, which is, um, it's a Hebrew letter. Uh, but a lot of times, like it started in the 1800s and Eastern Europe, Jewish men would wear them. It's almost like um, wearing a crucifix. It's very similar, uh, but this guy, you know, the grandfather, he carried it with him all the way through the concentration camps and survived the Holocaust and made it to America. And so there's basically this fight that goes on through the play between the cousins. Um, Daphne, she is like one of the, she is like a staunch, you know, Israeli hawk, maybe you could say, very intense practicing Jew. And my character was like a, studying Japanese at U Chicago. It was very secular and brings his non-Jewish girlfriend to to this apartment and he wants to use this guy to propose to his non-Jewish girlfriend and there's basically this fight about you know what it means to be Jewish for younger people in this day and age and what do you do with your culture and your tradition and it was just it was uh, it was really cool for me I like I was saying earlier I usually don't play characters who are very similar to me um, because I think it's a lot harder. <laughs> but this guy, Liam, was very similar to me in terms of like political and social beliefs. But he emotionally or whatever, he was just not a very empathetic person. It was very difficult for me to suss that out. But I did. And I I, I loved playing the role. The one really crazy thing that happened, um, our director, Amy Resnick, also a Bay Area Jew actor. Yeah. Very awesome, awesome person. She like one day in rehearsal, she played us this song. It's a song called Dona Dona. There's been many different recordings that this was like a Joan Baez one. Oh my God, I just started bawling because like my mom used to sing that song to me when I was like a baby. Oh wow. Uh, and it's like a Holocaust, like, or just a, a folk song about people who oppress. It's like the it's just a really it's a really beautiful song and it's just it was it was really nice to connect personally in that way to that story um and it you know made me feel different about being jewish and um it was really cool 
and I'm sure I'm sure those that watched it also that that would have that would have um, acted as something that they can relate to and something that that also touches them too. So that's that's again going back to what you were talking about earlier about the the actor having that direct connection to to an audience watching um, what you're doing. Yes, yeah, there was actually a don't agree with everything my character was saying, but my character was trying to marry a non-Jewish girl and was basically, you know, a secular Jew was um, eating leavened bread on Passover, which is a big no-no. You know, he was basically said he was, his voice was very much like, come on, we're Americans and we don't need this old stuff and whatever. That was sort of his, his take on things. And these two, this like older couple from Hungary approached me after the show. And it turns out they were from the same little town in Hungary that uh, my dad's family is from. And they, the one thing they said to me is, you know, if you were around in Hungary when we were, you would never have the courage to say the things that you said on stage. And wow. I really thought about that for a long time. And I talked about it with my dad. And eventually I was like, you know what? That is really cool. And that this part of the play is not that we should ever forget the Holocaust or anything like that, but the, this distance from this, the distance from the trauma can allow some evolution that couldn't have taken place a long time ago. And not that, you know, the world is heavily safe for Jews now or anything, but it was just, it was very interesting to me about the passage of time and culture. And, uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, totally. I mean, that's, I guess, I guess it's difficult being somebody who didn't live through it to, to understand, you know, what it was really like for somebody to go in there, especially when your job as an actor is to get into that headspace of somebody that, that has, has experienced a serious amount of oppression and, and pushback from, from your own success. Well, the character, this character had not experienced uh, oppression. He was kind of a snotty um, grad student was from New York. Yeah, okay. <laughs> but his grandfather went through the Holocaust. And some people in my family went through the Holocaust as well. It's a, a generational trauma that affects people in all sorts of different ways, like any other generational trauma you might have. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. And I guess I, I guess on the subject of, of history, you've also done a comedy sketch about the history channel called The First Dinner Ever. Tell us about that. So my, my writing partner and I, his name is Zizi Satriani. Um, we went to school together. We love making stuff together. I love ancient aliens. I mean, like, I don't necessarily believe that's what's happening, but I really like the show and I really like science fiction movies about ancient aliens. So I've seen a lot of shows on the History Channel. I feel like it's, it's a little bit about the History Channel, but it's maybe a better way to explain it is like the Da Vinci Code sort of things or like you know on the history channel they'll have these shows that are like the shroud of turin <laughs> this is how tell, like what jesus ate for breakfast you know and it's just like yeah and they're, and they're always at 4 a.m in the morning yeah <laughs> yeah and the experts they bring on and so we just i mean we've been talking about like doing something like that forever it's like they used to have those vh1 i love the 90s shows yeah that's right you wanted to be this person I mean, you couldn't sit down at the table unless you paid six hundred dollars. I mean, just like all this stuff. <laughs> Thought it was so funny for a long time, and it's like that's what they're doing on the History Channel with ancient history. <laughs> 
do you know one of the things that I find like when you watch things like other other channels as well that do things about space or, or something about history where they, they set it up about with a question they always set it up with a question don't they well how did this happen why did this happen and then at the end well we don't really know <laughs> I've just spent an hour at four in the morning trying to watch this and and that's it, it is that that's as far as you got and I've just wasted an hour watching that so it's um but yeah on ancient aliens they'll always do this thing where they'll be like so like did you know aliens land in Peru on the Nazca lines or whatever and then they'll ask somebody and they'll be like well yeah like you said we don't really know what happened uh, and no one can say exactly. And then like the narrator will instantly be like, so now that we know we've proved they've been on the Nazca lines, like, <laughs> what's the next question? It's like, I don't think you proved that last <laughs> segment. No, definitely not. Definitely didn't pr- prove it. And that's, and that's probably, that's probably the sort of advice that certain people in, in the world are taking, being fed such information that, that is certainly, certainly misleading and, and, and totally bottomless as well. Yeah. The meme brain, you know, it's a really harmful trend. But it's here. What are we going to do? You know? <laughs> so, so how much has 2020 forced you to adapt to the, no, the new way? I mean, obviously, you had all these exciting projects before, you know, you were getting some traction with, with, your, with your career and all of that sort of stuff. And then, and then the whole world sort of dried up in that sense. And, and how, how have you managed to adapt to that? And, and what? what do you aim to try and do to recover recover that situation going forward yeah so um i was um i was about to have a show at the national yiddish theater in new york which is a very reputable off-broadway theater um it was it's a we were going to do a ghost story in yiddish i was going to play a few different characters um and i was very excited as a living wage and you know there were some like tony nominated people involved i was like oh man like i'm here this is my break and everything and we were supposed to open may 17th and broadway closed on march 12th i definitely spent a little a few months kind of just being like what do i do now because i'm really i'm really my favorite thing was live performance i mean i'm into film now but um if i have my druthers of what to do would be performing live in front of people which is something that's very hard to do right now obviously. yeah for sure so yeah i mean i sp- i just spent a couple months like at my parents house just playing guitar not really sure what was going on and then i just started to spend more and more time playing guitar and learning music theory and scales and it just eventually built up to like eight to ten hours a day which is where I am now and playing guitar is something I started doing when I was like seven or eight Um, my dad taught me how to play a few basic chords and it's always been in my life and that age 17 is when I decided to pursue acting instead of music but before that I was I was thinking about music and it it kind of had just there wasn't that much space for it in my life because I was just busting my ass so hard to um, to make it as an actor in New York and the last few months in this pan- horrible pandemic, one bright thing is it's really brought music back into my life and really made me feel like I'm allowed to play and it just it gives me so much joy. And so now I, so what I'm doing right now is uh, mostly session gigs for other uh, recording artists, go to the studio and um, do record some guitar parts with them, which is really fun. I just love playing with other people. And I, I write my own songs as well, but I really want to be in a, be in a band, you know, play with other people. And uh, maybe play my own songs, play their songs. And as far as acting, I'm, the reason I'm in Los Angeles is because 
Uh, my writing partner lives here at a lot of film people. I know live here and I've kind of been doing theater in uh, New York, but I've got a TV agent here now in Los Angeles. And my friends and I are going to make some follow-ups to the History Channel sketch. Um, and we're also working on like a longer sci-fi, uh, noir kind of David Lynchy thing. So, you know, basically starting back from square one, trying to do it all myself, it's going to be... <laughs> or with friends too. It's a lot of hard work, but there's nothing I'd rather be doing. Yeah, definitely. And and how how much does music help inspire you to do these other these other creative outlets of yours? It's everything. I, I, I usually, um, when I'm thinking of like a, when I'm writing in a, a script, I usually have, when I'm not writing and I'm playing guitar, what ends up happening is I end up writing a little piece of music that, is to me is like what the tone of this thing is going to be or this is the color that this show feels like and this is what it's going to be and then like i guess like we were talking about earlier i feel like comedic timing and keeping tempo in music in a band are just are very similar very related things and i so i didn't study acting in college i studied arabic language and i just felt like the whole time I was getting the greatest acting instruction because I was not only learning new points of articulation and new ways to move my mouth and new sounds to make, but also learning about the different ways that people in other con cultures conceptualize things. I mean, language is so, like the idea you have is dependent on the language that you use to express it, right? <laughs> and yeah, definitely. Understanding that. And I guess just like the cross-discipline, transferable, stuff is what I, I i love i could find that in so many things yeah for sure for sure with so much going on everywhere else and and in the world and and all that sort of stuff one of the things that's really important to do is to, to take a moment to try and take yourself out of out of all of these pools in your life all of these things that are pulling you in different directions and is music the thing that takes you away from all of that and allows you to have that escape from from everything that we've spoken about from from the you know the negative things in the media from stuff that's going on social media from some of the awful things that are happening around the world yes absolutely i mean it's when you're the thing that can be challenging i think this is for all people and all things is to you know it's one thing to pick up the guitar but it's another thing to really take away you know this like you were saying the stresses of the day and just kind of take deep breaths, focus on what you're doing and really get into that, you know, they call it the flow state or whatever, when you're really just focused on the task at hand. And it's almost, it's like a meditation, you know, that I feel I'm always just trying to find different ways to be in that state of mind. And, and music is definitely, I would, I would say just the number one thing. I mean, even like, just listening to music. I mean, there's something so mysterious and all-consuming about it, you know? <laughs> yeah. you know it, it's, it can supersede everything else at times if you let it, in a good way. Does that go for <laughs> listening to music as well, not just playing music? Yes, absolutely. I think so, absolutely. We mentioned earlier in the, the conversation about about the expectation to be successful, the, the huge the huge place that, that we're we're supposed to get to or the, the, the lim limitless opportunities that are that there are to, to achieve and to, to, to succeed. Looking at 
sort of where you've come to now with throughout your life and over the years if you were to tell your 15 year old self what they should do to to prime themselves for everything that's happened in the world now what would you tell him i would tell him to trust himself i think that a lot of times we rob ourselves of our own power and agency right of just this the critic you know the self-doubt of just uh well nobody really wants to hear about this or people are going to think i'm weird if i say this or i'm interested in this and just do it and then like if you know you get the feedback then you can revise but i would say in this world i mean we're just slowly edging towards being so careful and self-conscious that we're not going to connect, we're not going to be vulnerable, we're not going to reach out to each other and, and do the things that matter um, and say the things that matter. And I think just that trusting yourself while, of course, being open to other people's opinion of what you're saying and doing, uh, people that you trust and love, especially, I think that's that's the most valuable thing. I mean, you see somebody putting themselves out there, really laying it out on the line, being vulnerable. I mean, that's the most beautiful thing. We, we spoke about the seize the day element of life, that, that mentality of seizing the day and, and taking every opportunity that that's there and, and how that, that was bred by or at least accentuated by something like social media. Yeah. For youngsters coming through now, the, you know, that those that are moving through the world and, and they're born into a world that they can't avoid social media. It's there. They have to consume it. They have to they, they have to do that. They have to consume what's on social media. There's no way around it to, to fit into society, to fit into um, friendship circles or cliques. They have to be a part of this this virtual world that, that's been created by um, conglomerates and, and other other huge companies. What advice would you have for them to help guide them through that, to be okay about not having to do everything that's easy of the day, not to do everything that is presumably about having fun? You know, this this idea that you have to go to a bar to have fun, you have to go to the dance floor to have fun, you have to go and do this, you have to be there uh, when someone's going live on, on social media. What advice do you have for them to, to remove themselves from this compelling you know compulsion that we have to 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 be a part of something always and constantly well i mean for i guess first of all you know you you know what you like and you want to be a part of things and communities that you like and people you share common interests with that's great to connect with them and make friends and obviously that's essential but i guess what i would say is like i don't know exactly what it's like for them because i'm about 15 years older than them and it was different for me um, even though we had social media too when I was in middle school. Honestly, what I would say to them is like, you don't need to be on this. You can just delete yours. And <laughs> it would everybody would be better off just doing that. And I think that um, kids, I mean, it's, you know, I remember too, because I was there as well. It's just like, there's this mystery and this myth of being popular and how do I be more in the center of things? And that's obviously a lot of, most people don't lose that growing up and it's really tough. And like I was said earlier, we call it FOMO, the fear of missing out. And um, it's something you will always have to contend with. It will always be there, but you have the power to ignore it and do your thing. And I think that 
one thing that's really hard for kids to understand, at least it was very hard for me to understand as a kid, is like being purely yourself and being vulnerable. And I mean, sometimes being vulnerable just means like not going on social media if you don't want to. It's, I think it's, it's really hard for kids to be original because they face so much pressure and so much tamping down, you know, and trying to lower yourself into the ranks and all that. And I just think it's, don't do that. You don't have to do that. Just, you know, not to get all Disney, but like, listen to your heart and, you know, what motivates you and why do you get out of bed and do that, you know. And I guess providing you're happy in those moments that you do take a moment to, you know, to just to just be in your space, to be in your moment, in your in your world is, is you know, while still having social media as part of your life i guess if you know when to take those moments and being comfortable with that then then that's also a healthy healthy way to approach approach these things yeah yeah absolutely i mean look lots of people depend on social media for their livelihoods and i you know that's awesome i wish i could do that i just i'm not a not a person who can handle that or know how to use that you know i i definitely have some respect for people who do but i I think that in the long run, honestly, it's destroying our society and it's destroying kind of the fabric of human connectivity and really what makes life worth living. And I, I really want to like see a world where, you know, kids and, you know, society is sort of moving up away from that as opposed to deeper into it. And honestly, I think those documentary I was telling you about the other day, The Social Dilemma, I think something's going to come from that. It was really explosive. Absolutely, yeah. And, and uh, yeah, I, I was just about to move this on to you plugging your stuff and you've you've just plugged a completely different aspect. So let's, uh, let's bring it around. I mean, I think this has been an amazing conversation. I've absolutely loved speaking to you today. Jackson and and you know just picking your brain about about life about the way you see the world and, and things like that you know we come from two very different places two places that are very far away from each other but I guess what's important now is is to just sort of bring this together in a sense that you know you are a creative you've, you've done so many great things on online you've got so many you've got so many outlets that you're you're performing in and and how can people you know watch your stuff and find out more about you and follow your career Oh, yes. Well, if you if you go to YouTube and you search Zizi Satriani, S-A-T-R-I-A-N-I, and First Dinner Ever, or the web series Act Natural, the untold story of the natural actor. That's an eight-episode web series that we have on YouTube. Each episode's around five minutes. Some are three, some are seven. It's very zany and fun. We made that in 2016. And um, the first dinner ever, which is the History Channel sketch, that's that's on the channel as well. And um, we'll, we're definitely going to be coming out with a few more little sketch, like mockumentary type sketches like that. And then also a, a bigger sci-fi noir project that I was talking about. And those will be on the YouTube channel as well. Absolutely. And you know, I know we, we've had a, an extensive chat about um, social media, but if they go over to your website, jacksonmgoldberg.com, then they can find out all of this stuff. You've got news on there. You've got places they can contact you and they can check out your other work as well. Yes, absolutely. Thank you for saying that, Luke. That was a much better and more concise way to promote myself than I. <laughs> Thank you.
Jackson Goldberg, what a lovely person he is. I highly recommend everything he's doing creatively. And if you'd like to find out more about him or follow us on social media, just check out the show notes. Next week, I'm joined by the 2020 Josie Music Awards winner and World Artist of the Year, Natalie Jean. Stay safe, keep smiling, and I'll speak to you next week. Thank you.